morning. The word of God from Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you remain standing just a moment longer as we pray? Thank you so much, Meredith. Pray with me. Uh, Father, we um, commit this time to you, and I pray that you would find our hearts fertile soil to receive your word. May these ancient words um, land on modern ears so that we would know you and love you and trust you. And I uh, just confess that this season, that's hard to do. Uh, This season is complex. So we pray that you would just surprise us with hope and with love and joy and trust. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Denver Prez. I'm Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, So we, as you can tell by all the decorations, we're in a season of Advent. And um, as you could read like the front of the bulletin, Advent, it it comes from the Latin word Adventus, and we have to use Latin to make ourselves feel smart sometimes. But it just means coming or appearance. And it's the season when God's people um, rehearse and remember and wait expectantly, even longingly, that's the word I want, longingly for the promised king to arrive, right? So prior to the first Christmas, Israel, right, was in an oppression. They're waiting for the promised king to come. He came. Jesus was born in a manger. And that is the sort of symbol uh, of Christmas time for Christians, right? And now, once again, we are waiting for Jesus, our King, to come again and and to fix all of the oppression that still exists, right? To fix this broken world. And we wait longingly because there's something that we need to long for. Uh, We 
uh, recognize that the Bible kind of interprets this life, and uh, it helps us understand that life is hard, right? It interprets our misery of sorts. How so? Well, our first parents rebelled against God, and so they are banished from the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden, if you're not familiar, Eden is this place where God was with man, man with man, and man with creation. They were all together, and there was perfect harmony. But now, every single level of our existence is fractured, and life is hard. And there's a groaning in our souls that never quits. It's like our souls remember, like there's this, we have like soul memory of this other place that we were created for, but it's gone. It's gone. When I was in high school, I kind of got into the music of Les Miserables. Uh, That's the musical that's based on Victor Hugo's novel. So I wasn't rocking out to uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket and Hooting the Blowfish. I was listening to show tunes, everyone. Uh, so there's, um, there's this one song in Les Miserables that's always fascinated me. Uh, if you're familiar with the musical, you probably know it. It's I Dreamed a Dream. So uh, if you're not familiar with the story, there's this character named Fontaine. She was this young, pretty orphan who, who became a blue-collar worker. She becomes pregnant by some presumptuous elitist student, and then he he, uh, he ghosts, right? He's out. He's gone. And she becomes a single mother. And ultimately, uh, she gets into prostitution to actually care for her daughter, to provide for her. She would do anything to care for her daughter, to include selling her hair and even selling her front teeth. It's incredible love. And she's the one who sings the song, I Dreamed a Dream. Now listen to just a portion of the lyrics. And think about what was lost in Eden. All right? Listen with that framework. She says, There was a time when men... I don't know why I get so emotional. What's wrong with me? There was a time when men were kind and their voices were soft and their words were inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and that song was exciting. And then there was a time when it all went wrong. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I mean, I had heard the lyrics to that song a million times. When I was in seminary, Amanda and I got to go watch a, a, the Broadway musical came to St. Louis. We got to watch it. And upon hearing those same beautiful words, I mean, I just wept right there in, in my seat. I mean, I just, I just, in the theater, weeping, I just couldn't control the tears. They just kept coming. And I'm like, why? Well, what am I doing just weeping there in the theater? And it's that those words brought utterance to what my soul feels so deeply. What is it I'm feeling? It's exile, right? That shadow, that brokenness, it's exile. The world is like nothing like it's supposed to be. And all of these songs and all of these lights can't fix it. 
What happened? What went wrong? Because the world seemed good enough at first glance, right? It, it seemed fine enough, good enough to hold our dreams. But then it all goes wrong. Life first appears to us like this, this big, lush forest full of flourishing and beautiful trees. And then it all gets mowed down like a massive deforestation, right? And now when we look around in this world, as far as I can see, it is a forest of stumps. Stumps. And all we're left with is our tears and our broken hearts. And here's the question that we're kind of left with if we just give ourselves a little bit of silence, a little bit of quietness, is how do we keep going? I mean, what keeps us from growing cynical or depressed? Why do we keep going instead of just giving up? Well, I think the season of Advent speaks to this groaning in our souls. And so this morning, we heard this passage in Isaiah 11, and the ancient audience who first received this had so much in common with us today. And let me explain. So I did the like background big context last week, so I'm, I'm going to try to give you, if you weren't here, I'll give the Cliff's notes of what we talked about. But essentially, Isaiah 11 comes at a time when Israel had split into two countries, right? There was the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, and um, in Judah, there was a new king in power. It's a guy named King Ahaz, and this guy was a real jerk, honestly. And uh, Jews understood that the fortunes of the country were tied to the obedience of their king. And so there they are, um, Assyria is the big superpower, and they're growing uh, in power. There's all these smaller countries. You have um, Edom and Philistia. You have Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. So Syria is teaming up with the northern, uh, with the northern uh, country, uh, Israel, and everyone's kind of uh, circling in on the southern kingdom, Judah. And so what does Ahaz do? He makes uh, an alliance with Assyria, this this pagan country, which was like strictly forbidden. So God had said, hey, listen, Ahaz, Judah, I will take care of you. Do not put your trust in the might of pagan kings. Trust me. Do not put your hopes and aspirations in this world. Trust me. I am the only thing dependable enough to take the weight of your dreams. Trust me, God says. And what does King Ahaz do? Yeah, he was a real knucklehead. <laughs> and remember, the Jews know that their fortunes are tied to the obedience of their king. So things aren't looking good. So through the prophet Isaiah, God gives them this image of what's going to happen. He says this big old seemingly lush forest called Assyria, it looks strong, God says, I'm going to cut it down, and it's going to become a forest of stumps. As far as the eye can see, stumps. And everything that Ahaz has put his trust in, God is going to deal ruthlessly with it. And if you attempt to rest in anything other than God, 
you will lose. You will lose your fortune. You will lose your rest. You will lose your dreams. And you will lose God himself. This is reality. Like, that's not a threat. That's just how the thing works. But listen, God doesn't leave his people uh, hopeless. He gives them a vision of a new king. And remember, the fortunes of the people are tied to the obedience of the king. And so we need a new king to come into our world filled with stumps. That's what this passage is about. And I'm going to try to unpack it for us. But this passage foretells 500 years prior to Christ that a new king will come, an advent king. And this morning we're going to see this advent king with a promise of wise judgment and a promise of restoration. And those are going to be our two points this morning as we study it. A promise of wise judgment and a promise of restoration. And those two headings have everything to do with our life today. So let's, let's listen carefully, and let's begin uh, with point number one, a promise of wise judgment. So during Christmas time, the principal hope, our symbol of hope, right, is like the Christmas tree, right? That's what we do. I, I love Christmas trees. Uh, I, I signed up for a Charlie Brown Christmas tree by cutting down our own. Thanks, Jason Farrar, for nothing. Kidding. Uh, so we like them. I like Christmas trees. Um, I like to turn off the lights at night and just stare at the lights twinkling. I kind of get lost in it. I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, well, in uh, the context of where we are, the, the symbol for hope wasn't a cute Christmas tree. It was something quite different. It was this forest of stumps. But from one stump, what happens, and you'll see this in verse 1, from this one stump, the stump of Jesse... There's punching forth a root, all right? You'll see like a twig, like a shoot is popping up. So everything is mowed down, but one single shoot from the stump of Jesse is, is bringing this new life. So Jesse, if, if you don't know, uh, Jesse is King David's father. And so this is imagery of the Davidic king and the Davidic lineage, a king from David's line, right? So David was understood and as, as Israel's greatest king. And verse 2 says, look there, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Now, that's just Bible speak for telling us that this king is the authorized, promised Messiah of God, right? So when the Spirit rests on you, like it says there in verse 2, it means you are being anointed king, all right? So like, think Jesus' baptism, right? Comes out of the water and what? The Spirit rests on him. He's being anointed king, right? Now here we're, ta so we're talking here about this promised one. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, uh, we see that this figure is born of a virgin. Last week we learned, chapter 9, this promised one has these awesome nicknames like Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And now, in chapter 11, we see that he is a promised king from this line of David. And so why is all of this so significant? It's because when the Spirit rests on him, according to verse 2, he will have the spirit of wisdom and counsel and knowledge. He will fear the Lord. He does the exact opposite of King Ahaz. Right? King Ahaz is a fool, and everyone's paying for it. It's like the dad who can't keep his mouth shut or can't spend his money wisely and the whole family suffers poverty because of his foolishness, right? 
that's how Judah, that's how like the whole kingdom felt. But this promised king is coming and he's different and he judges differently. So according to verse 3, look there, he doesn't judge by what the eye sees or what the ear hears. This king has an entirely different criteria. This king can look into the heart. This king looks into the heart and see if he, if him, he himself, if his righteousness is in you. Isn't that interesting? So who does your heart, to who does your heart belong when you look inside? This is so important because this passage is not interested in moral perfection. If that's what you're reading, like, let go of your fundamental roots here. This is not talking about moral perfection. It's interested in where you place your hopes and your dreams. Do you place them in this lush forest of Assyria? They look strong. They're politically shrewd. The wisdom of the world says, yeah, like, get with the times. Right? Happiness, according to the times, means throwing off the yoke and the chains of religion and of faith and of godliness and service and generosity. Instead, bet on yourself. Right? Because you know better than God how to live and how to be happy. You know best. You do you. Oh, yeah? Why is that so? Like, try it. Like, let me know how that works out for you. Like, run into that forest. Let me know how that works out for you. Because in no time at all, listen, you will be with that washed up middle-aged dude sitting at the bar at Outback Steakhouse on Christmas Eve talking to the waitress because no one is waiting for you at home. That guy bet on himself. He ran into the forest and it was mowed down. I saw a picture on Facebook a few years ago um, by a middle-aged woman. And by middle-aged, I mean people like me. Uh, she, um, she took a picture of a Christmas dinner table in her home, but it was set for just one person. And she had this one caption. It said, our choices have consequences. That's all it said. Sobering. Like she bet on her own wisdom. And here's what I want you to hear. We're no better than them. These are good people. These are respectable people. These are people you want in your home playing with your children. These are good people. But they put their trust in themselves. They thought they knew better. This king is the only true king with the spirit of wisdom. With wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. Now, you can see in this text a promise of wise judgment. So we understand the wisdom part, but what about the judgment part? Well, look there, verse 4. Um, it says, he shall judge the poor. But then if you go on, it says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. All right, so like, what's happening in this text here? God is judging the poor and the wicked. Now, like, what did the poor do? <laughs> like, what did they ever do, right? Well, nothing. When you hear that word judge, uh, the only connotation that most people have is of condemnation, to condemn, right, to co condemnation. That's actually not how the Hebrew word works. The word judge, now listen carefully, the word judge means to implement an action 
that brings about justice, right? So the poor get justice. That is so good. That is good news for the poor. They get justice. Uh, They're going to be taken care of. But then the wicked get justice too. And that's bad. That's bad for them. Now, I want to slow down for just a second here. um, Because in the Bible, we find a God, a king, who judges. Now, like in our modern culture, right, this is probably the single most off-putting part about religion, right? We have an allergy against any notion of judgment. We don't like the idea of God who judges people. And now listen real quick, because I, I want you to make sure you're, you're hearing what I'm saying. When people are judgy and snotty and self-righteous, like, we absolutely should have an allergy against that. That's obnoxious, and Christians should never act like that. And there's no place for that here at Denver Press. Like, don't do that. All right? That's, I hope you're hearing that. But when God exercises judgment, it's actually aimed to bring you hope. Now, let me explain. Um, one time I, I was preaching a sermon at a conference for college kids, uh, afterwards, there's this young lady. She came up to me. She was clearly kind of disturbed, maybe by something I said. I'm not exactly sure what happened. But she says to me, she says, Ronnie, uh, I could never believe in a God who judges anyone. I believe God is love. And I said, okay, got it. I understand. Now, I uh, was also that same year in Africa. Uh, I preached a sermon on grace and love. I preached to a, a, a community, a very specific community that had been hurt uh, by a different tribe. There's a long story, uh, history between warring tribes. There's a lot of blood, a lot of death in these, uh, between these two tribes. And uh, so I was preaching on love and grace to um, that particular people. And after the sermon, a young man comes up to me, and he was clearly disturbed. Um, and he says to me, he says, Ronnie, I could never believe in a God who does not judge anyone. God must punish evil, right? Okay, got it. So what we have here are two people who are rejecting God for precisely the opposite reasons. Who's right? Who's right? Listen, if God does not judge, then then we have to like, take either vengeance into our own hands or like bury that intuition and just live with disappointment because the bad guys win or something like that, right? But if God does judge, then we're kind of implicated because we're guilty too. Like we're gonna be on the wrong side of judgment. And this is where the beauty of this passage kind of emerges. Here we have this king who judges with perfect wisdom, right? He can see through all the fakes and the lies and the deceit. He he has a different criteria. He looks at the heart. And what is he looking for? He's not looking for perfection. He's looking to see in our hearts what we are trusting in. Is it ourselves? Is it the forest? Like ourselves? Or is it a shoot that is punching forth through one of those stumps? Listen, every Christmas we tell the story of wise men coming to Jesus and the wisest people in the world bow down to worship Jesus. Why? Because they knew they should not bet on themselves. They depended on his wise judgment. How about you? How about you? 
What are you betting on? All right, so that's uh, the, the promise of wise judgment, verses 1 through 5. Now let's look, starting at verses 6, the second point, the promise of restoration. All right, let me explain a little bit there. So when this king comes and consummates his kingdom, or he, he begins to set up his kingdom, that memory of Eden, remember that soul memory, that memory of Eden will return. In Eden, we find a place where God and man dwelt together in perfect harmony, in perfect intimacy. There's no death, there's no disappointment, there's no groaning in the soul, right? And this is actually the imagery of verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Look there again. This text tells us that a wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now listen, this, this still happens today, you guys. I mean, y'all ever seen Animal Planet? Anyone? Yeah, wolves are, are dining with lambs, except the lambs are their dinner, right? All right? So, the, so uh, this, is, uh, this is new, right? Eden is a place where bloodshed is, the bloodshed of nature is removed so that beasts that are natural enemies can now lie together and no harm is done. Carnivores become herbivores. Little children lead dangerous animals. You see that in verse 8? You see that? A nursing child shall play over the hole of a snake. What's that about? What does talk of snakes remind you of? That's right, the serpent, a mouthpiece of evil. Even evil will be purged and tamed, right? This is the great hope of the Advent King, what he brings. This king does not simply punish evil, but he can actually undo it. And we began to think about this last week. This reminds me of J.R.R. Tolkien's character, Samwise Gamgee. Anyone? Samwise Gamgee? Uh, he's Frodo's hobbit buddy. I know y'all have seen the movies. In the third book, uh, he sees Gandalf, right? The great wizard. And this beautiful conversation ensues. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, Gandalf says. And then he laughs, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Like, this is no small thing, right? This truth has the power to enchant your heart with hope as you walk through this forest of stumps, the groaning. So Tim Keller, right, he says, he goes, like, secular people, they don't have any real, real fundamental hope, right? Like, like in life, what happens, happens. There's no supposed to be, right? The world is moving and losing energy. The sun's going to grow cold. We're all going to die. Nothing matters. I mean, nothing eternally matters because the sun's going to grow cold one day, right? And if you are kind in this world or evil, it doesn't matter. The sun's going cold. No one's going to remember what is just is. And then religious people, 
try to offer consolation. They're like, you know, the world is really bad. But if you are really, really good, even though this life is terrible, you'll get to go to heaven or have illumination or whatever your flavor of religion. And it'll be so good that you will forget about the hard stuff. But listen, the Christian gospel offers something far different than both of those. What the gospel offers is restoration. Everything we wanted but never achieved, we get it. All the nightmares in this life, we won't forget them. They will become untrue. Wolves and lamb will will lie together. Lions will eat straw like the ox, the curse, the exile. All of it will be restored. The promise of Eden will return. The shadow will leave the land. My goodness, like I wish I could preach so stinking good that you would believe this in the most profound part of your heart. But I can't preach good enough to make you believe this. Like you've got to like want it. You've got to like beg the Lord for it. Like you've got to beg him. Why won't you beg him to believe this? It's true. And just beg him to work this into your heart. It is the best thing I could tell you today. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his novel, we put it on like the front page of your bulletin. He expresses faith like this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass. That it will suffice, satisfy for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. I mean, we don't even dream dreams that big anymore. Our hearts barely have categories to understand how this could possibly be true. But listen, it is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. The Advent King will come not only with a promise of wise judgment, but with a promise of restoration. Not just consolation. Not cosmic amnesia restoration. Get your hearts around that. The world will be put to rights. The promised king will do this. That's why we celebrate Advent, waiting, longingly, expectantly. He will come and he will do this. Why do I trust him? Why do I trust that he will ensure that the dark shadow of curse that is cast upon this exile of life we're living will go away. It's because that dark shadow was cast upon him first when the, when the sun went dark that afternoon that he was crucified. It's because he allowed this curse to come upon himself first. He died so that our story doesn't end in death. Not ultimately it won't, 
Our death will be untrue one day. Ours will be a life with him. The dream that we dream will come. No curse. This promise of the Advent King, listen, our fortunes are tied to the obedience of our King. That's good news for us. And for this reason, we can walk, keep going, in the sadness of Advent even, looking around, there's stumps everywhere, but we can keep walking, keeping our eyes for that root to shoot forth from that stump. Amen? Amen.